How many of you remember what we've been talking about? Holy Spirit, and last week was what? Knowing the, the will of God. It's a good thing I'm giving lots of hints here. Anybody remember what TTGS stands for? Teach, testify, guide, and show. Four things that the Holy Spirit will do for you. Remember, if you can identify what God wants to do, that's the place where you anchor your faith. Faith begins where the will of God is known. So when you know that God wants to bless you or lead you or teach you in a certain circumstance, it's at that point that faith can begin to believe. That's a little phrase. Don't ever forget it for the rest of your life. Faith begins where the will of God is known. So let's go and look at Elijah again. Go with me to 1 Kings 17. One of the things that I've always appreciated about the, the word of God is that it shows the people in it for who they are. Elijah was a man with like passions as we are. Here's the guy that calls down fire and then kills 850 of uh, Baal's and Ashtoreth's uh, prophets. And then by the word of one woman who says, I'm going to kill you by tomorrow, he gets scared and runs into the, to the desert. A man with like passions that we are. <clears throat> we see these guys all through the Bible, people with the same issues that you and I have. It's, I did a series one time on um, Jacob's family. And some of you might remember that series that I did, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob with his wives and with all of his sons. It is the most dysfunctional family you've ever seen in the Bible. The brothers hate each other. The mom says, yo, you can have husband tonight, but I get the mandrakes. Right? Remember the story? Like, you give me the fruit that you got, and you can sleep with my husband tonight. I mean, this stuff was going on all through. And I thought, my, my parents got divorced when I was 12. And, I, and my sister's been divorced a couple of times. I'm the only one in our family who's been married and stayed married for what'll be 40 years on July the 2nd. And, and so I'm looking at these families in the Bible, and I'm thinking, you know what? These people let all the rest of us in. Right? I mean, here's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the wonderful patriarchs. But when you read the story of their life, Jacob, for the last, no, Isaac, pardon me, for the last 30 years of his life was a whiner about, man, I'm going to die pretty soon. You know, you guys better take care of me, and I don't know if I'm going to live to see anybody. And you read it over and over again. You think the guy is a whiner. He just complains and squawks about everything. The only reason he was blessed was because of Abraham's covenant with God. Isaac grew up as a rich boy and had everything that he wanted. And I, I remember looking at that and thinking, man, Lord, my family's not near as bad as some of these people that you used in the Bible. So remember that, you know, even when you read about Elijah, as we're going through what Elijah went through here. But we started this process of how do I know if I'm in the will of God? Because we talked about the Holy Spirit for several weeks and, t- and then talked about when you get prayed for, Holy Spirit goes inside and rearranges things. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've got something that I did. When the move of God was happening years ago, I, I, over the course of about six years, I watched certain things happen in us, in our church and in the people as Holy Spirit continually ministered. The first thing that happens is there's an expression of power. That expression of power begins to go on the inside of us and change things. I remember myself weeping at the altar, weeping and weeping and weeping one day, probably for an hour, just bawling like a baby and and getting up 
afterwards and noticing that a certain lust thing that I'd been dealing with wasn't there anymore. And I remember going before the Lord and saying, Lord, how, how did that? And, and I felt like what the Lord had spoken back to me was, well, when you opened yourself, as my, my spirit moved upon you and you opened yourself like you did to my spirit, I go in and I work in places where you don't know where, you're got, where you've got issues, where you're dealing with things. And I never forgot that, getting up after you know a, a, an hour and, at the altar. So the first thing that happens is the power comes. When the power comes, it releases pressure in your life. So when God's power is released, and some of you will have seen this uh, since, we, since we did the prayer that we did in January and February, constantly praying for people every service, you will notice that there's a pressure increase in your life because when power comes, it begins to adjust things and sometimes the pressure is not comfortable. Pressure increases after Holy Spirit's power is released. But the fruit of that is always purity. And I, I, I did a whole diagram on this years ago that the power comes, then the pressure comes, and then the purity is the response of that. And there's, there's, it's all through the Bible. You see when God dealt with people. So for those of you right now who've seen an increase in the pressure in your life, let God work. We think that whenever Holy Spirit comes and moves on the inside of me, everything's wonderful. Well, it is because he's readjusting things. He's removing the things that he doesn't want there, and he's removing the things that we don't want there. Unfortunately, he does it, or fortunately, he does it in his order, not ours. So if the pressure has increased in your life, if there's things that, that in the last three months have been like, whoa, what is going on here? We're to blame. Because we prayed for you every service, everybody that wanted prayer. That changes things in the spirit and soul of a church. <clears throat> every church has a spirit. Every church has a soul. And every church has a body. If you walk into a church and you go there for three, four, five, six weeks, you begin to pick up the spirit of the church. You begin to pick up what it feels like when you go there. The soul in a person is the mind, the will, and the emotions of a church. If you've gone to a church for six months, nine months, 12 months, you begin to pick up the soul of the church or what the world would call the culture of the church. Every church has a soul, has a mind, has a way that they think, depending on what comes from here and from what the culture is that's been established. And then, of course, every church has a body, and we're it, right, as we look around. So it's important to know that when we come together like this and the Spirit of God, we begin to release and say, God, come and move, come and do things. He begins to work oftentimes in the soul of the church. He'll begin to change the mindset of people in the church. He'll readjust it, and it's always a challenge. Whenever Holy Ghost comes, it's always a challenge because he challenges the status quo. He challenges what's not normal. And so he'll come and he'll begin to do things that you and I go, wait a minute, why am I crying? In my old church, I never cried. Why am I feeling what I'm feeling? 
Why is it that when I come, I feel the joy of the Lord? Why is it when I come that, that you start to convict me, Lord, about my relationship with my husband or about this or about that, whatever it is? So again, my point in this part right here, I just felt like Holy Ghost was saying to some of us that the pressure that's increased in your life, what does that mean? It might mean that your job pressure is increased. It might mean that your relational, your, your marriage pressure has increased or your family pressure has increased. It, it, it can mean any... But if, you're, if you've seen pressure increase in the last three months or so since we started, then know that you're right where God wants you because he's doing something. Pressure changes things. Pressure forces us to think different. Pressure forces us to, okay, wait a minute. Whoa, why is this happening? And it causes us to reach out to God and to access a part of him that we might not have known before. Remember, whatever you've gone or are going through, there's, a, there's a, a variant. No, that's not a good word. There's an aspect of the personality of God that you can meet. I remember years ago when I was traveling full-time and was pastoring the church here, and I, I was going up to Edmonton, and as I'm going up to Edmonton I, in the car, I just started to weep. And I'm just, I was just weeping and weeping. I'm like, God, what is going on? And I realized shortly after that that I was depressed. And you know, the faith part of me said, I'm not depressed. Bless God. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. But I had to acknowledge, here I am dealing with this, and, and I just had never been depressed in my life. I didn't know what it meant to be depressed, where just you're just you're just bummed out. It's like nothing's working. Nothing's going the way that I want. I don't have any answers. I'm discouraged. Why am I even trying? I'd never dealt with that before in my life. And I remember having to reach out to God and say, Lord, I don't know what to do here. I've always been, you know, woo, we can do this. God, greater is he that's in me. I've always been that ever since I got hooked back up to the Lord at 19. I just, I thought God's a winner. He's a victor. That makes me a victor because he's living in me. But, but with the things that I was doing and the pressure and all these different things, the awareness of that depression caused me to access God and say, wait a minute, you're here still for me, but how come I, don't, how come I can't find you in this? And it's at that point that you begin to search a little bit. You begin to think different thoughts than you thought before. And if you'll, if you'll, if you'll approach him, you'll find him. No matter what you're dealing with, there's an aspect of his personality that is the answer for what you're dealing with right now. I'm going to say that again. No matter what you're going through this morning, there is an aspect of the personality of God that answers your situation and brings you into his presence and the joy of the Lord. Some of you, that was good preaching. I'm just trying to get you sparking up here a little bit here. <clears throat> okay, you found 1 Kings 17. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. And the word of the Lord came to him saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you'll drink from the book, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. 
So quick review. Remember that the place that God sends him is called Cherith. Cherith means a place of cutting. So God's going to prune him here. God's going to cut some things in, in, in Elijah's life that God says, I don't, I don't want those things. For you to move ahead more, I don't want those things in your life. So I'm going to use this place. And I said to you earlier that the first thing he learns is to trust God for provision, right? He's got to believe God that the, the ravens are going to show up every morning and every night. But I think, I think the bigger lesson here for Elijah was learning to live in that place of, of isolation and aloneness. And as I shared with you last week, the famine was somewhere between two and three years. The Bible talks about three years, that, that famine being three years. So let's, let's just say that he was there for six months. As I said, let's just say six months, he's all alone. He's there. He doesn't leave from all we know. He doesn't leave the Cherith at all. He doesn't go into the town to buy groceries. He doesn't do any of that uh, as is evidenced by what I said to you last week when the servant Obadiah looked all over and said, the king has looked everywhere in every nation for you. So he was hidden away. And the interesting thing here, there's times when you go through things, and this is what I said last week, there's times when you go through things that nobody else can help you. Your friends can't help your wife, your husband can't help. You can phone the prayer line from every ministry that's online and say, would you pray for me? And nothing will change because there's something where God is saying, I want you to walk with me. In this period, I want you to walk with me. How many of you remember that thing, Footprints, from years ago? Where the guy looks back and there's two sets and then one and he goes, Lord, where were you? You know, when I was there. And the, and the Lord answers and says, the one footprints is when I carried you. I never did like that because I felt like those were my footprints and where was he? And so did some of you, if you would be honest enough to admit it. There was only one set of prints and they're my size. Yours are a lot bigger. <laughs> but, but he takes us through those times because as I said a few minutes ago, he's leading us somewhere that only he and I can get the answers to. You know, and I, I've said this many times over the years, I like getting prophetic words from somebody else, but I'd way rather get the word from the Lord. I'd way rather get that thing right here that I know that I know that I know. That's something. It's nice when somebody gives me a prophecy and, and I'll write it, record it, and write it down and I'll keep it, but it's nice when you've got it here. Did, did you ever notice that it says in Luke's gospel that Jesus often withdrew into the wilderness? The Bible says that when he left the river, when he's baptized, he left the, the river, the, the, the spirit drove him, Mark's gospel says. The word there is, is ikbalo, the Greek word, and it means to forcefully command or thrust. So he gets baptized, he comes up out of the water, and the Holy Spirit said, go! It wasn't a, okay, now it's time for me to lead you into the wilderness. No, the word was, you go now into the wilderness. And he, he went out, and the Bible says that he was with the wild beasts. And one, one version says, one, one scripture says, and to be tested 40 days. So he wasn't just tested from that, apparently by that, the implication is, he wasn't just tested by the three tests that we hear about at the end, but he went through testing for 40 days while he was out there. And isn't it interesting, the Bible says, and the wild beasts were with him. That he was out there by himself, trusting God for 40 days that he's not going to get killed by a lion, 
that this or that isn't going to happen to him, that he's obviously not going to starve to death, but he's fasting. So he's out there. But I've got to tell you something, and this, this is... It was the wilderness where the Lord waited for Moses. It was the wilderness where the burning bush appeared, the backside of the desert. It was the wilderness where John the Baptist grew up and learned to hear the voice of God. And it was the wilderness where the Holy Spirit sent Jesus And something must have happened out there that so bonded him to the Father that whenever he wanted to get more from God, he often withdrew into the wilderness to be alone. I'm telling you, there's something about the alone place where you meet God and the secret place is out there in the wilderness. What the Bible calls the secret place. They that dwell in the secret place of the Most High. The secret place is not a place, it's a positioning That place where you can go with Jesus that nobody else can go. And we learn that place in the season of aloneness. In the season when the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to take you into the wilderness. And I'm going to teach you that this is the place you and I meet. It's out here where there's nobody else. There's no noise. There's no distractions. There's nobody else. I find that very often that, that, that the only place that I can get to that place is when I'm alone in the house. We don't have a big house. We've only got a two-bedroom place just with the acreage that we're on right now. And so when Anne's home, there's only one place for me to go, one little bedroom. But I can't holler there. I can't scream. I can't cry. I can't, I can't like I would be able to in the wilderness because it's that place where you and God connect at a different level that you've never connected before. Let me tell you something. If you're there right now, you have an opportunity right now to to achieve something in his presence and in his person. The place of barrenness represents our prayer life. And it's in that place of barrenness. Once you've tasted it, you go back again and again and again and again. So there's times and seasons of fruitlessness in our lives. Times when things aren't easy, spiritual things are difficult or non-productive. And remember what I said, when there's no fruit, God's dealing with root. And here's the question that we ask, looking at Elijah's life as God sent him, a great, a great word spoken to the king in the king's court, <clears throat> and then out into the place of isolation with no words, no prophetic, no nothing, not even the voice of God as far as we know. Six months at least. Here's the question that you ask. What is the core source? You know, if you're into fitness at all, everything's about core right now. It's all about your core. This is where all your strength comes from. What is the core source of your life right now? Look at verse 7. Let's keep going. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And I mentioned this to you. The brook dried up because he spoke the word of God. So the brook dries up. And as I said, if you picture it, he comes out that morning and the brook is actually dry. It's dry. All there is there is dust. He digs down. There's nothing there because there's been no water. 
So he does the will of God. He goes to the place God says. He goes to the place that God has provided for him. And now the source of life dries up for him, making it harder. So I'm going to say something here that I, I, I just want to shock your thinking. Our obedience to God often makes our walk more difficult. <laughs> that went over just about how I thought it would. Our obedience to God can make our walk more difficult. Moses said, yes, I'll do what you want, and got saddled with several million rebellious Jews for the next 40 years of his life. How would you like that? I love reading about Moses because the guy is just going before God all the time going, what is the story here? Do you ever know the one, the, you ever notice that one point where the, he comes down and they've sinned, they built the golden calf and everything, and God goes, your people who you brought out of Egypt have sinned. And Moses flips it right around and says, no, but your people that you rescued from Pharaoh's hand, and they're going back and forth on this thing. I ain't responsible. God goes, well, I ain't responsible. Moses says, well, I'm not either because you called me and you called them, so you're responsible. <laughs> Funniest thing in the world. As he goes through. So his obedience made his walk harder. What about Abraham? Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I mean, your children are going to be like the stars. The Bible says that Abraham was very rich in men servants and maid servants and camels and donkeys and horses and all those things. And all of that's wonderful. And then God says, uh, hey, Abraham, I want you to kill your son. What? Take your son, your only son, Isaac. That's what God said to him because he was the son of promise. Take him and kill him. All of a sudden, Abraham's walk got a whole lot harder, didn't it? When you obey, oftentimes your walk will get harder. Why? If, you know, I've been involved in sports stuff all my life. And I remember that when somebody was really good at something, in school, when they were really good athletically, in, in high school, the coaches would work them extra hard. The trainers, you look at any physical thing, look at Olympic athletes, the, the Cairo guy that I've gone to for about 12 years works with Calgary Flames and Calgary Stampeders and the Canadian Olympic team. He would travel with the Canadian Olympic team. So he knows his stuff about how, how he's got to get you back in the game. That's his whole thing. It's not you're going to come for the next 12 visits, you know, and then you'll be here forever for the rest of your life, which tends to kind of happen sometimes. But, but his thing was, we'll get you back in the game. And, you know, so I'm playing soccer. It was, it was spring. It was early. The night was cold. I'm running, and I pull a hamstring. And I can feel it, you know, I mean, just right down the back of your leg and you're like, ah, oh, and I mean, you just go down right there, right? Because you don't want to pull it any further. Well, I've done that before in sports. And so I, I go, I just, I stayed on the ground. The ref saw it, blew the whistle, stopped the play. I go off, they sub somebody else on. I hobble over to the side and I'm rubbing that thing, you know, and, and uh, we didn't have any ice on the bench. As soon as I got home, I iced it and did all the stuff that you're supposed to do. And I went to the, to the Cairo guy and he, he took my leg and hurt me. <clears throat> And, you know, they, because they got to find out how bad it is. It is a grade one tear, grade two, grade three. Is it, is it torn real bad? 
And so he's messing around with it, and I'm going, ah. And, and he goes, ah, it's not bad. I think it's about a grade two. He says, he got, and um, well, when you do something like that, for, for me at that age, it would be six weeks to be back in the game. So I'm going to miss roughly two games a week. So I'm missing 12 games, which I did not want to do. And uh, so I said to him, I said, okay, well, what can we do? So he had done this stuff. He said, okay, here's what you got to do. He told me, if you do what I tell you, you'll be back in in three to four weeks at the most. But you got to do every day what I tell you. And so he put me through this regimen of, of strengthening that muscle again and not tearing it, but working it so that it would build itself back up. So I did what he said, you know, every day, every day, every day. <clears throat> and sure enough, three and a half weeks later, Everything, because I had been, by that time, I was running full speed again out in, in the field near our house. I was just running. And so, and I, I thought to myself, how does he know that? Because he knows the muscles. He knows the way that the muscles work and the bones work. He knows those things. And I thought, he made me work harder than I would normally work because he knew what needed to happen for me to get back in the game. And it just reminded me over the years of the practices that I'd been in where they just pushed us and pushed us and pushed us because they knew that something on the inside could go to another level in the Division I soccer that we were playing if, if they would pull it out of us. And I realized something years ago, that Jesus takes us where we need to be, not where we want to go. Think about what I just said. Lord, I feel called over there. That's nice. This is my will over here. And it's smaller, and it's less pay, and it's humbler, and you're going to have a lot more work to do over there. Yeah, I don't think that's the will of God. Like one guy said, do you want to know the will of God to do it or to pray about it? It's quiet in this little Presbyterian church. <laughs> so our own obedience to God can make our walk more difficult. Back to Elijah. So finally one day the brook is completely dry. At this point, it's at this point in your life when you can't see where the provision is going to come from and when the Lord hasn't spoken to you yet about your situation that you have opportunity to believe. I've said this for years. You don't know how much faith you have for finances until all the money in your bank account is gone. It, you, you can have faith for finances when you got 50 Gs in the, in the account there. It's going to take care of things when you lose your job. That's a piece of cake. Oh, bless God, he meets all my needs. Well, let's see how that faith does when all them Gs is gone. Right? Come on, don't look at me so holy. It's the truth. So the brook is dry. Verse 8, after the brook dries up, the word of the Lord comes. Whew. Thank you, Jesus. Verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him saying, arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Interesting thing, as I did a word study this week, in both cases where he said, I've commanded the ravens to feed you, I've commanded the woman to feed you, the word is better translated here, appointed. Which, which, which changes things a little bit. Because we think a command is, get her done. You know, charge, get up, get going. <clears throat> so verse 10, he arose and went to Zarephath. 
And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her, being extremely presumptuous, and said, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Happy, happy situation. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first. And bring it to me, and afterwards make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry till the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her son household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. So let's get the picture. Go back to, to Cherith. The Lord sends him to Zarephath, which is about 100 miles away. Would have been a four to five day journey in a very hot climate. Coincidentally, the same city that um, Jezebel comes from. So these people were not typically friendly or Israel wasn't friendly with them. So on his way, let's speculate for a minute. He's possibly thinking, okay, this is good. She's a widow, and the Lord has commanded her to take care of me, so she must know about me, and she must know that I'm coming. Huh. Maybe, maybe her husband died, left her the house and money to live on. Finally, somebody to provide for me. I must have passed the test at Cherith. Yes. I don't have to do the ravens and, and bread and meat and a creek. Like I'm going to live in a house and a lady's going to take care of me. Thank God. Every guy's dream. She's going to cook. She's going to clean. <laughs> Come on. He's a guy. He's on his way there. He's thinking, I passed the test. And God's commanded a widow. So she's, she must have the means to take care of me. Otherwise, God wouldn't be sending me there. Right? Isn't that what we do? Isn't it interesting that we always have the way that the Lord should meet our needs? Well, before when I prayed, you know, people, I found checks that were mailed to me. And so when I come to the next place where my job is in jeopardy or I'm moving and we don't, you know, blah, 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 I just go and check the mailbox. You know what? You can check the mailbox again and again and again and again because God won't use the mailbox next time. <laughs> He'll do something else. I quit years ago. I quit years ago asking God how. He won't tell you how. He keeps you in faith because if he told you how, you'd blab it out and the devil would get in the middle of it and stop it from happening. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Some of you are like, really? Come on. He, just try. Just go ahead. Ask him. How are you going to do it? And watch it. It'll be, we're sorry. Heaven is not able to take your call right now. <laughs> that's all you will get. The number you have called has been temporarily disconnected. That is not the right question. You will get a multiple choice thing from heaven because he won't answer that. He does not answer how. How does he do it? By faith, that's how. And one time he'll put the checks in the mailbox and another time somebody will get a raise. And another time, you know, the ravens will come. 
I heard the funniest story about this little girl who was believing God for a kitten. True story. And she, she said, Mommy, it was in the Reader's Digest, so it had to be true. She said, Mommy, she said, I would like a kitten because my friend's got a kitten. And her mom said, Honey, we just don't want a kitten in the house. Just, just. And she bugged her mom and bugged her mom and bugged her mom. And finally, her mom said, okay, if God gives you a kitten, then you can have a kitten. Friends of theirs had a litter of cats about two yards over, three yards over. One of the kittens climbed up in this sapling that was about 10 feet high. And one of the boys saw it there, and he thought, well, I know the way to get the kitten down. So he reached up and grabbed the branches that were close to the top and pulled the sapling down. It's a true story. When he got it down to where it was bent about the right amount, the leaves stripped off of the stem that he was holding onto and launched the kitten. The little girl is out in her backyard, and here's this... She goes over, and here's this kitten. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. She picks the kitten up and goes in the house. She said, Mommy, a kitten just landed in our backyard. She got to keep the kitten. Don't ask God how. Some people are going to remember what I just said right there in that story, and that's the only part of the whole message I remember. <laughs> just remember, don't ask God how the kitten is going to come, okay? We think this. Well, of course the Lord is going to get me this kind of job. That's what I trained for. That's what I went to school for. I mean, obviously that's what he'll give me a job doing. Don't put your hand up. How many of you came to this nation with, with training in a specific area and you're here and you're not doing what you were trained to do in the country that you were in back home? I've talked to many of you that aren't. And maybe the Lord will move, it into you, move you into it, but maybe he won't. So, <clears throat> Elijah assumes, as any of us would, that if she's going to provide for him, she's got the means to do it. She must be well off or at least she's stable in the midst of the famine. But here's the paradox, and I want, this is going to twist your brain a little bit. If he doesn't show up, she and her son are going to die. But wait, I've commanded, I've appointed a widow woman to take care of you. But if he doesn't go there, she's going to die. So who's got the blessing? He's got the blessing. He's the one bringing the blessing that she'll use to provide for him. What does that mean? Because Elijah is obedient, he now becomes a blessing to someone else whose survival depends on his obedience. Can you see how God just flipped that whole thing around and brought two needs together, two wrongs, and they made a right? Elijah doesn't have any food, but he's got an anointing. She's got just enough meal and oil to make one meal. But the two of them together 
What would have happened if Elijah wasn't obedient? She dies. What if he says this? Just, just, just speculate here for a minute, conjecture. What if he says, wait a minute, I'm not called to the other people. You called me to Israel. I'm a prophet to the people of Israel. It can't be God telling me to go to Sidon. Like, that doesn't make sense. Why would God send me out of the country? And yet Jesus quoted this very example right here because of the people's unbelief that he was preaching to and said there were many widows in the time of Elijah, but God didn't send them to one of the, the widows in Israel. He sent them out to, to something else. And one of the keys here is that the Lord said, I have prepared a widow there. There's so much in that statement. You think of that right there. How'd God prepare that widow? Let's keep going. So he comes to Zarephath, which means a smelting place or a place of burning. <clears throat> God sends him from the cutting place to the refining place. He comes to Zarephath. He sits at the gate, and as the custom was at the time, he asks one of the residents for a drink. This is a basic hospitality back in those days. If, if You read it all through your Bible. If somebody was there sitting at the city gate or sitting at the well, the main well, then people and recognized it was a visitor, it was, it was hospitality, to, to ask, are you taken care of? Have, are you? That was just the way that travelers did it back then, was people took care of each other. I remember being in Egypt when I was just a young boy at 19 years of age and just going and seeing the, the, the pyramids. And we're out there, you know, a couple of us guys together, long hair and, and raggedy looking, you know, dressed in our, our shorts and a T-shirt because it, it was 55 degrees on the taxi um, on the thermometer in the taxi, the, the, the thermometer went up to 55 degrees Celsius, and the thing was pegged right off the end of the, of the... So for us little Canadian boys, you know, who I was outside yesterday in my T-shirt sitting in a warm spot in the sun because it was 7 degrees. <laughs> that tells you that you're, you're thinking it's warm when you've just come out of winter. I thought, 7 degrees, I'm sitting outside trying to catch a few rays. How desperate can you get? But here... But so... Uh, here we are, and we're out there walking, and this Egyptian guy, you know, is standing there doing something or other. We got talking, and, and within 10 minutes, he says, where are you from? We said, Canada. He goes, oh. He said, you come. You come. My house. You come. And so we were kind of like, and we thought, you know, you, they're going to sell you something, right? Because so many places, and you go, and then they want to, and maybe that's, maybe they should. Anyways, we're sitting out there, and I'll just never forget, I talk about the hospitality that's still there in many of these nations, most of the Muslim nations. And so I, I hear him, we're sitting on the sand about 150 yards from the edge of, of town, and it's just a bunch of little shacks and stuff like that, and I hear him holler into town and say something in uh, Arabic, and this young girl comes running out, and he says, you know, and he's like, and she's looking at us, you know, here's the two white guys, and here's dad, and, and okay, so this is 1981, okay, so this is a while ago. She goes running back in. She comes back. He's making conversation mostly through his son who speaks enough English. So <clears throat> she, she comes back about 20 minutes later with food and drinks. I'll never forget this because, it, I mean, it, it was so neat. The hospitality was so neat. But what I remember was the sun had just gone down over the horizon, so it's still about 100 degrees Fahrenheit, you know. I mean, it's cooking hot. And they brought a rice and chicken dish out that was folded up in newspaper, opened it out before us, and I, I started taking bites because we were hot and, you know. 
It was hot, and it was so hot. Like the food was just like, <laughs> and the only thing they had to drink, she brought out a cooler of ice cold Coke. Some of you have no idea what the combination of what I just said. Next time, go somewhere and get the hottest stuff. Frank's hot sauce is like, the Frank's is like three and a half, two and a half. Try some of this stuff that, that your nostrils and your ears, it's just like, <laughs> it burns here and it burns all the way down. And if you eat enough of it, it burns all the way through. <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody ate that? It's, it's just, it's a danger zone that you don't know about until you experience it. And we're sitting out there, and I'll never forget it. It impacted my mind. We're sitting out there with the pyramids behind us and a, a, a real, just a genuine Egyptian family sitting there making conversation with these two young guys from Canada. My face is burning off. I'm trying to be polite. I don't know the rules, so I'm thinking I've got to eat what they put before me. But the problem was every time I fill, finished my bowl, then the guy, his wife would go, oh, and she'd give me more. And finally, I realized there is no way I'm going to win this battle. I'm just going to keep eating hot stuff. So the story emphasizing the point that Elijah asking her for a drink of water was commonplace. There was nothing unusual about that. So then as she's going, he asks her for food too. Now, follow this. There's no indication that Elijah knew that this was the one the Lord had picked. Yet. Right? There's no indication of that. I think that Elijah's, and, and from what we can tell, she didn't know either. So here's the two people that are called to meet each other's needs, and neither of them know it. How like God. I wonder how many situations that he leads us into that we expect the blessing to come from here, and it comes from over there. I don't have time to go on that. I think Elijah's request for bread might have pushed her over the edge. Yo, uh, weary traveler guy, uh, I don't have any bread. As a matter of fact, I don't even have enough food in the house to feed myself and my little boy. So I'm just gathering a few sticks to make a cooking fire and we're going to eat the last of it and then we're just pretty much going to die. <laughs> Elijah then realizes by revelation that this is the woman. But think of what goes through Elijah's head as the woman's talking to him. God speaks to his heart. This is the one that's going to provide for you. Great. I get Aunt Jemima on her last meal. She's barely getting by. I wonder if she even has a bed in the house for me. Am I going to have to sleep with the donkeys? I mean, she's poor, 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 poor. The poorest of the poor. She's got so little left, she's going to die. Like, how would you feel? You think you're going to the Hilton. Then you end up in the feed trough. God does that to us again. Watch your expectations, because one of the ways that offense comes is by expectation. Well, I believe God's going to do this, and then when he doesn't do it, we get offended at him. I'm going to say that again. One of the ways that stumbling stones comes from the enemy is when we expect God to do something a certain way. When he doesn't do it that way, we get offended that he didn't do it. Well, well that, I mean, I just, what, I just assumed that's the way that it was going to happen. Hmm. 
But he repeats his request, and he tells her to make food first for himself and then for her son, and then gives her the prophetic word. Boy, that would go over good on the 6 o'clock news, wouldn't it? Preacher takes woman's last meal. (laughs) You watch. There's a reason for everything that happens here. Now, she's the one who has to believe. You go take care of my needs first. And here's what I'm coming to you with. Thus says the Lord. The food that you have won't run dry. This is where I said I believe that God prepared her. He said, I prepared a widow. He'd prepared her heart. She'd been some connection where she'd been saying, God, I'm going to die. I mean, that's what everybody does when they're about to die, right? God, if there is a God, what, what, whatever has to happen. So she cries out, we don't know that, but the indication is she obviously believed because she went and did what he said. Now, there's a number of interesting things right here. She's not an Israelite, so she has no covenant with God like the people of Israel. She has no guarantee that God is going to meet her needs. Do you remember the woman that came up to Jesus, came up to the disciples and came to Jesus and said, my little daughter... Or my, my, yeah, my daughter is, is at home, and she's sick, and she's going to die. And the Bible says that Jesus ignored her. Come on, follow me here. He goes all the way through that process, and he says, it's not right to take the children's food and give it to the dogs. He just called the woman a dog. That would go over good on the news, too. Preacher calls woman a dog at the altar. You, gotta th- you, you, gotta, you can't just read over that. You've got to stop and realize why. The word dog was the Jewish word for the people who were outside of the covenant. So Elijah says to this woman, you go and you make me something first. Why? Because the moment that she obeyed the word of the Lord and gave the first fruits to Elijah, she invoked the covenant that Elijah had to work on her behalf. She had to give him her first fruits. She had to give Elijah what cost her everything. She wasn't allowed to make it for herself first because that wouldn't initiate the covenant. The covenant that Elijah walked under was the covenant of provision that was given to Abraham. So he's moving her into the covenant of Abraham for the season that he's there, which is exactly what Jesus did with the woman. When Jesus said to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. And she said, yeah, but even the dogs get the crumbs. And what what was Jesus' response? Oh, woman, great is your faith. He had to get her over into believing. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Jesus wasn't just slapping her around to try and degrade her. He had to move her into a place where she moved past the covenant of the law, which she couldn't get, and moved into faith because faith is what pleases God. So Jesus had to get her to react and say, wait a minute, I know these people. I'm as good as these people, and you're meeting their needs, and you have an obligation to meet my needs too. It was a bold faith. It was the kind of faith that Jesus said that when, when the father comes back, will he find this kind of faith, the faith that just keeps going up to the unjust judge and says, get justice for me from my adversary. Get justice for me from my adversary. Get justice for me from my adversary. And Jesus used that very illustration and said, will, will, will I find the son of mankind this kind of faith? Why? The kind of faith that gets in God's face and says, I believe your word. I believe it's true. And I won't back down until you bless me according to what you said. 
Now, for some of you, I just went about 40 feet over your head because you've never heard that kind of thing before of the faith that doesn't quit, doesn't give up, and never backs down no matter what comes. And it's not a matter of twisting God's arm and saying, you better do this for me. God never responds to attitude. It's a matter of stepping over that line and saying, bless God, your word is true, and I believe this, and I will die standing here believing this. I'll never give up on what that says right there. So he had to get her over into faith. So he said, you take your last meal and you give it to me. And thus says the word of the Lord. And right there, she had a choice to believe. When she believed, boom, the covenant was, went into place. Do you know why? That's why we, we don't, and I, I hardly preach on it. I'm going to preach on it sometime, hopefully before summer. I'm going to preach on giving and tithing. God always asks you for the first fruits. Because he doesn't want your leftovers. Some of you are like, well, I can't afford a tithe. I just give God what's left at the end of the month. Great, stay there then. He always asks for the best. He always asks for the first fruits. He always asks for what costs you something. When you don't give him what's first, you give him the leftovers, and you give him the blind and the lame and the crippled and the scarred. He said, don't bring me a lamb with a scar on it. Don't bring me a heifer that's lame in one leg. He said, those offerings are an abomination to me. That's what God said to the Jews. He said, you bring me the lime and the, and the, the, the lame and the blind and, the, and all these old things. He says, I am sick of your offerings. That's what God thinks when we spend all of our money on everything that we need. And then we go, oh, right, God, here's, here's, your, here's your fiver for the month. Don't do that, you guys. You work against your own blessing when you give him what's left over. Well, it was a hard year. It was a hard year because you didn't give him what he was his. Off. And, and you know the biggest thing that changes? The weight of your finances moves from you to him because you've given him the first 10%. I talked to somebody last week. I was so proud of them. They said, you know what? We've been struggling. And, and you know, I, said, I lost my job and such and such a thing. And I believe it was his wife said, honey, uh, you need to double your tithe. He said, I don't have a job. She said, yeah, but if you double your tithe, then God will meet the need according to what you are now tithing. And I've seen that happen a number of times over the years. If you're not making enough, double your 10%. Because you know what God will do? He'll look at it in the spirit realm as though you're tithing to that amount, and you'll soon start getting that amount. And I can tell you stories, but it's not part of this message. That's why he told her, you give me yours first to initiate the covenant. Let's finish. So here you see a couple of things. Obedience to God causes the blessing to begin to go to someone else. Just imagine if we were all completely obedient, how the will of the Lord would be manifested in our church and in our city. If all of us did what God was saying. You know, and, and I mean, we pray and we ask and that sort of thing, but I'm trying to bring it to a point where this becomes a focal point in your life because we want to stand before Jesus in heaven and he says, what did you do with the calling I gave you? What did you do with the money I gave you? What did you do with the gift I gave you? What did you do with the heart that I gave you? What did you do with the ability to pray for other people that I gave you? What did you do with the healing hands that I gave you? What did you do with the intercessory gift that I gave you? All those things that he's given us, he's going to require an account and we want to be able to say, Lord... I prayed and I sought you as much as I possibly could. And I don't know how much I got, but I believe that I did my very best. Rather than going, well, I knew I wasn't supposed to take that job, but you know, 
I mean, it was a hard time on the earth. It was, there was a lot of pressure. There was a, none of that's going to count when we stand before him. You know, the interesting thing is I get older, I realize, dear God, our time is so short. What am I here for? And the rest of eternity is in heaven. Here for one reason. What do you want me to do? One thing. You better stand up. Something else that I think is seen here. That Elijah needed others as well. He needed that woman. He had the anointing, but she had the food. It wasn't just about him and God. You know that first ministry position that I told you about that I didn't want to go to? That had those three options, and the one that I went to turned out to be the hardest of all the options. But you know what I learned there? That it wasn't just about me and my calling. That my calling was dependent on you. As your callings dependent on me. And as our callings are dependent on each other as we walk together. That was what I learned in those four years in that first church. I need people. I grew up extremely independent. My mom would say, you're so independent. She said, nothing bothers you. She said, you don't need anybody for anything. You should do it all yourself. And that becomes a critical flaw when you're trying to walk in the things of God. I've worked on that all my life. I still work on it. I can do this. I can get her done. What else? His obedience revealed a greater level of the supernatural. And here's a good one for some of you that are here in Canada and wonder. Elijah was right where God wanted him and he wasn't even in his own country. You ever been to a place where you're so far from what you thought God wanted for you, you don't even know how to get back? I'm going to say that again. You ever been in a place in God where you're so far from what you thought God was probably going to do with you that you don't even know how to get back to what you thought he wanted to do? You might be right in the middle of the will of God where you are. And the key to all these things is to seek him and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? If I'm not where you want me to be, move me. If I'm not doing what you want me to be doing, what am I supposed to be doing? You know one of the best ways to do it? Find some person, some place, some church, something, and serve. Because when you start to serve, you offer your gift, and when you offer your gift to help somebody else, you sow into the body of Christ, and you reap back God's beginning to bring your gift, whatever you sow, you reap. You serve your gift, God will bring back the answer to your gift and start moving you towards it. Amen. Close your eyes for a sec. Father, I thank you today. You are moving your whole body in the world into your will. You are moving the body of Christ, whether we like it or not, we're dealing with things we never dealt with before, COVID, things that happened, then all the vaccine stuff, and of course, the globalist agenda being revealed around the world, amount of corruption that we've never seen this degree now being exposed. You are moving your people into what you created us to do, not what we think we should do. I want you to pray a little prayer on the inside right now, just an alignment prayer. 
where you just ask the Lord and say, God, I'm, I'm bringing this before you. What is it? You might be young and you might be old, but if you're still breathing, you're not done. So I want you to take a minute right now and go before him on this whole will of God thing. Holy Spirit, here I am. There's someone in here, you're an older person, but just as soon as I said that there a minute ago, you've laid something down. And I feel like it, it wasn't supposed to be laid down yet. It's like you took a pack off your shoulder and you set it down and like, oh, good. But I feel like the Lord says that that's not done. And here's the word of the Lord. If you'll pick that back up, whatever it was you laid down, and this is a man I'm speaking to specifically, if you'll pick that back up, I'll carry the weight of it where you have it on your shoulders. You'll feel it, but you won't carry the weight. For those others of us in here, just submit for a minute right now to, Lord, whatever you want. As you're doing that, Christians, if you've never made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, maybe you've gone to church, maybe you're here with, as a visitor, but if you've never done that, can I encourage you to come up and see myself, Pastor Clive, or Pastor Joshua at the end, and let us lead you through a prayer where you just say, Jesus, here I am, here's my life, whatever you want to do with my life, it's yours. Lord, this morning as a church, we humble ourselves before you that as we move into this season in the world, unlike any other season, that we might be followers of you, that we might be willing and obedient to hear your voice and then to follow that voice and say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Some of you here that uh, you, you know that there's a call to go to missions but you're frustrated because you don't know how to get there I feel like the Lord is saying no no you just let me do it you let me do it but all I want is your yes if you'll give me your yes I'll take care of it and that's a there's a girl that I'm seeing in my mind here a woman but I believe it's for more than one of us this morning we say yes to your will and to your purpose that you might manifest your kingdom in our lives and through our lives to others. I speak over you this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up the light of his countenance upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen, amen. If you need prayer this morning, we've got some prayers up here. Come on up. They'll pray with you. Even if you don't need prayer, some of you should come up anyways. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us online today. I hope the message encouraged and blessed you. You know, you can stay up to date with all things Southside by following us on social media, downloading our app, or checking out our website at svcf.ca. You can also get to know more about my wife and I by following Times of Refreshing on Facebook and Instagram. And thanks, everyone, for joining us today in building a community of believers together. Have a great week. And you know what? When you get a chance, come and join us here at the church in Calgary. You'll be blessed by it.